It is often said that the 1400s were the twilight years of the medieval era, when the feudal kingdoms of the Middle Ages began the long process of evolving into the centralized realms of the early modern age, the precursor of the modern nation-state, which is the model upon which nearly every country is run today. While this is an oversimplified narrative not agreed upon by all historians, the fact remains that during the 15th century, the kingdoms of Western Europe did undergo large-scale projects of stabilization and concentration, both in administration and territory. In this video, we'll take a broad look at how various European monarchies transitioned out of the Middle Ages and examine the changes in politics, government and society that emerged from this metamorphosis. Maybe things will be different in your own kingdom. Build one for yourself right now with our sponsor, Kingdom Maker. Available to download on Android or iOS for free via our link in the description. It's like a combination of a strategy game, an RPG, a life simulator, and a general mix of light-hearted medieval antics. You'll be building a kingdom via military, economic, and social means. That means you'll gather resources and train armies as you often do, but you'll also want to throw a few sacrifices to the gods, explore the land and its many dungeons with your nobles, and to make sure you have the best nobles around, you need to meddle in marriage and get the right babies. New characters inherit traits from their parents, so this underlying matchmaking drama is part of the strategy. You can customize everything and rearrange your buildings and characters as you see fit to make sure it's truly your kingdom. But don't isolate yourself from the rest of the players. Join alliances to make fighting easier, or participate in large-scale rivalries between the alliances, sending aid to any battles you want, where your unique champions and armies engage in real-time combat. Start your kingdom right now for free, either on Android or iOS, by using our link in the description. Before we start, we have to specify that the reforms of the 1400s were not the beginnings of a new process, but a continuation of other reforms and attempts that had been made in the previous centuries. Nor did the evolution of European statehood reach its final form in this era, as resistance, crises and changes in policies often thwart our attempts to understand the progression of society as a linear forward path. With all that said, let us now take a look at how the monarchies of 15th century Western Europe, such as France, England and the newly forming Spain, took concrete steps to centralize their administration and militaries. In the 1450s and 60s, a period of economic decline swept across Europe. The resulting recession saw civil war become a grimly common occurrence for various kingdoms, such as the War of the Roses in England, the noble rebellions in France, and enduring contests in both Aragon and Castile during the 1460s and 70s. These wars were caused by deep dissatisfaction fermented in the towns and amongst the common folk, who amidst the economic decay found their rights and privileges eroding, while taxation increased and disorder became widespread. This ultimately broke the fragile relationship between the royal governments of Europe and the powerful notables they ruled, such as nobles and the leading citizens of influential towns. These magnates were often compelled to act against their kings, either out of their own personal interest or under pressure of their own disillusioned subjects, and would thus often take up arms against their monarchs while claiming to act for the people as a political community. 
all this was a direct blow to Europe's monarchies, who while dealing with both financial decline and internal instability, found their power weaker than ever. As a result of their woes, the royal courts of Europe came to the conclusion that there was a need for royal governments to establish some form of central coordination over their vassals, and procure a stream of income independent from the taxes they provided. As such, fiscal and jurisdictional assets that had been dispersed among their vassals had to be recuperated, a process which was accomplished through the confiscation of the nobles' property, tampering with their inheritances, negotiations, and sometimes outright war against them. By the end of the 15th century, Europe's monarchs had regained much of their previously lost assets, and in some cases had increased the amount of land they controlled directly, as opposed to through a feudal landholder. This was helped by the death or disappearance of many of the great magnates and princes in their realms, either through luck, as family lines died off without heirs, or through the direct confiscation of their lands and titles by their monarchs. For example, the kings of France absorbed the Duchy of Alençon as a crown-controlled territory following a trial of its duke for treason. In 1477, they also inherited Burgundy and Picardy following the death of Charles the Bold, Duke of Burgundy, at the Battle of Nancy, which was later repeated in 1481 as the Angevin house went extinct, which brought their lands in Provence, Bar and Anjou under royal control. Finally, in 1491, the autonomous Duchy of Brittany came under French influence when Anne of Brittany married Charles VII, which would ultimately lead to the integration of the region. In England, the War of the Roses thinned the lines of the great magnates that had dominated London's politics during the Hundred Years' Wars, allowing the Tudor monarchy to recuperate estates and privileges as many of these had been confiscated by the different claimants during the Civil War. Still on the British Isles, King James II of Scotland took control over the great holdings of the Douglas family in the 1450s, and later the Scottish Crown took over the Lordship of the Isles. Meanwhile, consolidation and alliance were other methods by which monarchies increased their power, such as was the case in the Iberian Peninsula, where the two biggest states in Iberia, Castile and Aragon, entered into a union through the marital joining of their respective rulers, Isabella and Ferdinand, creating a strong powerhouse that would be an important factor in the following centuries. Another outcome of the civil wars was the strengthening of the realm itself over individual vassal holdings as the main political center of a kingdom, and the increase of importance of the public good, or res publica, as the most important political goal. In essence, this meant that while monarchs and their subjects might have their problems, it was important for them to try resolving them. This evolving relationship between the ruler and the ruled resulted in domestic and foreign policy becoming more clearly separated, a division which we take for granted now, but did not exist during the earlier Middle Ages, such as during the Hundred Years' Wars, when nobles in France often swore allegiance to either the Valois kings of France or the Plantagenet dynasty of England, depending on how the war was going. Throughout the 15th century, an effort was made to make jurisdiction clearer, more coordinated and hierarchical, the rediscovery and distribution of the codified law of the ancient Romans helped establish various legal norms across European realms. In addition, 
new courtly institutions were established across kingdoms to administer direct royal justice, taking away influence from local municipalities or noble officers who previously had been acting mostly independently of royal guidance. Consequently, central courts became more accessible to people who lived outside of royal capitals, as high courts were established in provinces. In France, these courts were called Parlements, while in Castile they were called Audientias. The message in establishing these houses of justice was clear. Kings, not their vassals, were the ones who would guarantee public order and justice for all in their kingdoms. Over time, these royal courts became increasingly sophisticated as the number of those employed by them increased and their processes became more organized. In England, Henry VII retained the much-expanded estates of the crown in his own hands and used them to sustain an extensive network of gentry servants, while the parliament continued to retain its functions. Meanwhile in Spain, the local assemblies, the Cortes, retained influence and important functions, while in France instead power was taken from local assemblies. An important element emerging in this period was the establishment of permanent ambassadors among the greater countries of Europe, with Ferdinand of Aragon, the Italian states and the papacy being especially prolific with this. Another means by which kings sought to consolidate power within their realms was by establishing greater control over the church. As the power of the papacy declined in the wake of the schism between competing popes of Rome and Avignon, royal governments also tried to bear down upon the clergy in their countries. In 1438, Charles VII decreed the pragmatic sanction of Bourges that diminished the power from the Pope in France regarding the appointment of bishops and the collection of taxes. The intermittent revoking and re-establishing of this bill over the following years was often used to make the popes dance to the French king's tune. Meanwhile, the emergence of the Protestant movements allowed some states to remove the influence the pope had on their country entirely, such as Henry VIII famously did with the creation of the Church of England. Thus far, we have covered the legal, societal and religious consolidation of monarchical power, but another pillar of revolution during this period lay in the royal army. During the 15th century, European armies experienced a significant evolution. Before, kings had relied on feudal armies, where nobles brought their own retinue to fight for the king. After, the kingdoms of Europe were capable of fielding a standing army under the direct control of the monarchs. In France, Charles VII attempted to pass a series of military reforms in 1439 with the goal of creating a permanent army drafted from roaming bands of unemployed mercenaries, with commanders chosen by the king himself, thereby ensuring no one else could raise an army without royal consent. While this attempt failed in the following year when the princes of the kingdom rebelled against him, in 1445 Charles managed to create the embryo that would become the French standing army. Fifteen compagnies d'ordinance were created, each composed of 100 lances, which were a unit consisting of five to six men, one of them being men-at-arms, two mounted archers, a page and a coutier, and a lightly armored mounted soldier. Each company was led by a commander chosen by the king, often drawn from the lower nobility and stationed in different regions, with groups of lances being placed in different villages that were charged with feeding and housing them during peacetime in exchange for tax exemptions. 
to the surprise of their contemporaries, these companies were not disbanded at the end of the Hundred Years' War, as was expected, but they remained in the service of the king, and would grow in numbers in the following centuries. In the 1480s, these companies would be bolstered by Swiss mercenaries, after they had impressed the French court after their victory over Charles of Burgundy in 1477. By the end of the century, the French monarchs could raise an army of 20,000 to 25,000 men. Outside of France, the Republic of Venice and the Kingdom of Hungary, under Matthias Corvinus, had also managed to create professional armies. While the Spanish Union began to create a national army in the 1490s, drawing from their experience obtained in the last phase of the Reconquista, when they had conquered the last remnants of Muslim Iberia in 1492. A year later, in 1493, Spanish heavy cavalry was organized in companies of 100 men-at-arms, each under the direct control of the crown, and during the Italian wars, the same would be done with the infantry. In the following century, this would evolve into the famous Tercio system, with these reformations came the opportunity for innovation in military technology. Armies, cannons and gunpowder units, which had become prominent in sieges during the 1300s, started being deployed on the battlefield in greater numbers. Another innovation was the evolution of pike infantry, spearheaded by the Swiss, resulting in professional infantrymen increasing substantially, whereas before, infantry soldiers had primarily been drawn from peasant levies. Cavalry still remained important for the armies of the time, and their total numbers did not change in the 1500s, but the large increase of infantry meant that their percentage decreased. With all this covered, it should be noted that the creation of standing armies was not universal across Europe. For example, during this era, England's military was still composed of levies drawn from the aristocracy. Of course, professional soldiers need to be paid in wages, and thus the means by which the kingdoms paid their standing armies became more centralized as a result. Soldiers received their money through the administration of royal officials instead of local fee-folders, as the feudal levies of old had been. To finance the administration and the army, the states needed resources and funds. The evolution in taxation varied quite a lot between different countries, but generally, taxes began to be collected with greater consistency instead of being one-time exceptions granted by local councils, and the reformation of the fiscal administration. Particularly in France, the king managed to levy the taille, a direct tax on the non-noble population, without needing the consent of the general estates from 1439, but this was an exception. Generally, representative bodies managed to keep their influence in most European kingdoms, and sometimes even managed to keep their power in avoiding greater taxation, with only France, Castile and Denmark showing a decline of the assemblies. Also, the amount of taxes levied did not increase, and in fact in some places like Castile, England and France, the total tax revenue at the end of the 14th century decreased when compared to a century before during wartime, as there was a general relaxation of fiscal pressure following the Hundred Years' War and the unrest in the 50s and 60s. In fact, the crown would continue to borrow heavily, as it was impossible for the king to support its wars with only tax revenue, and it would continue to do so for the following centuries. In the past, this era, often calling the kingdoms adopting these reforms new monarchies, 
was seen as the birth of the modern nation-states, and the period in which this trajectory began, which would lead to the absolute monarchies of the 17th century. More modern historians have criticized this view, like John Morrill, who calls these states dynastic agglomerates that had to deal with the local elites of the newly integrated territories who remained important for the running of the state, and these countries would remain fragile for the following centuries, thus not securing some of the reforms implemented in the 15th century. More videos on social and political history are on the way, so make sure you are subscribed and have pressed the bell button to see them. Please consider liking, commenting and sharing, it helps immensely. Our videos would be impossible without our kind patrons and YouTube channel members, whose ranks you can join via the links in the description to know our schedule, get early access to our videos, access our Discord and much more. This is the Kings and Generals channel, and we will catch you on the next one.